We return to our interview with Stan Smith as he explains how Venezuela cannot access its own banking assets due to U.S. leveraging of its economic hegemony. It's unavailable to the Venezuelan government, yes. I don't know how much of all that money Juan Guaido is in charge of, but he's in charge of a lot. So, I mean, they're just like looting Venezuela. Yeah, so there is no recourse for Venezuela other than what? Through the U.N. or the ICC? To address that? Oh, yeah, they're taking it to the International Criminal Court. Okay. But, you know, the International Criminal Court, is they going to do something that the U.S. doesn't approve of? Uh, no. It's like the International Criminal Court was going to investigate U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan a year or a year and two years ago. And Bolton said that, you know, if you're going to investigate U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan, we're going to sanction the, the judges on the International Criminal Court. And he, that's what he did. So sanctioned the you, judges on the International Criminal Court for even considering a case against the U.S. So basically what you're saying is that the most powerful country in the world, mainly based on the world reserve currency being the U.S. dollar, is the United States, which apparently allows it to be above the law. There's the ICC, if they threaten any types of actions as an international court system against the United States, then they are threatened by these very powerful interests that are basically controlled by the, the U.S. power by having the dollar as a world reserve currency. Is that is that a fair? Uh, yeah. You could also say, I mean, Venezuela could also take it to the World Trade Organization to protest the sanctions. Mm-hmm. That's the other international forum. But, you know, who runs that? United States. The United States and Europe run run the ICC and the World Trade Organization. In the United States and Europe have sanctions on Venezuela. Are they going to declare the sanctions illegal? <laughs> yeah, it was interesting because I can remember, and I was looking at the uh, General Assembly adopting a resolution back in 2002. I think it was October 16th of 2002, it adopted a resolution calling on states not to recognize these unilateral coercive economic measures that you're talking about. And it adopted this resolution on this unilateral coercive economic measures. And the General Assembly called on all states to not recognize or apply such measures or legislation imposed by any state across territorial boundaries which were contrary to recognized principles of international law. And it was, uh, the resolution was adopted by 133 nations in favor to just two against. That was Israel and the United States. And uh, there was two abstentions with Australia and Latvia. And the assembly reiterated its call for the repeal of unilateral extraterritorial laws that impose these coercive measures. And so, you know, there's comments that are made. If you're familiar with the UN process, different countries can then have representatives make comments on the pending deal. So before it was passed and in the text, they included, this was in the provisional agenda, this would have been the 59th session, an item entitled Elimination of Unilateral Extraterritorial Coercive Economic Measures as a Means of Political and Economic Compulsion. So they had identified that this is so wrong that the economic might of certain countries 
could be unilaterally used in a way in order as a means of political and economic compulsion. And the U.S. defense was they were just asserting their right to use this coercive process. So I guess it really is kind of an unbelievable story that you're laying out here because, you know, you're right. I mean, this sanctions against Cuba have been voted you know, down through yeah, a resolution since thirty years now. Yeah, Every since year since, since the nineteen nineties by and but by one hundred eighty one. Cuba now is worse than it was, you know, five years ago. Right, but I mean, it's actually you, getting worse. The point I'm trying to get to is that the whole world is voting like one hundred eighty one to three, saying this is wrong, this is not right, and yet mm-hmm. because it's just a resolution, that vote really has no power to dissuade the United States. And, and so I wanted to take a step back because these other financial institutions, you mentioned them briefly earlier in our conversation, and I want you to talk a little bit more about them. When you talk about the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund, you talk about certain nations that have an inordinate influence in the decision-making of those groups. Can you lay out for us the influence, the disproportionate influence the U.S. and some of its other international power structure allies exert in those lending institutions and how, once again, if you stray off off the reservation of what the United States, the West, these neo-colonial powers want you to do as a leader of a nation, then you could be facing um, not just sanctions, but uh, the unavailability of these loaning institutions. Can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, I did know that the World Bank is supposed to be there to help in the development of countries. The kind of development they want, they tell third world countries, well, you need to get more so-called hard currency, which means like the dollar and the euro and so on. And so to get that money, you need to focus on your export sector and keep exporting to the Western countries. And we'll give you money to do that. So that just makes these countries dependent upon exports to the West. And IMF, they're supposed to help with emergency loans, like IMF had funds that was going to give to, it was giving to countries to help buy vaccines to fight coronavirus. Venezuela asked for loans from the IMF to buy vaccines for the coronavirus, and they got refused. It's amazing. But I guess you have to look at, I guess, both of those. You have to go back like 500 years. It's like these countries in the third world used to be independent. They used to be economically self-sufficient. They used to be self-sufficient in food production and in energy production, and then they got invaded by the West, and their whole economic systems and political systems were destroyed, and then they were all rebuilt to be geared to servicing the Western powers. Mm-hmm. And then they did that for 500 years or so, and then they became set up and they became independent. The economies are all based on being dependent upon the West on serving the Western market, and they're not, very few of them are actually uh, independent in the food production, Mm. I mean, self-sufficient in food production, and they're not self-sufficient in energy production. And to to be like that, they have to import food and energy from the West, and they need dollars. So the IMF and World Bank, they're there to help maintain that system of keeping these countries dependent forever, mm-hmm. and that's how they use their money, to loan to these countries to keep them dependent upon 
serving the Western columns. Mm-hmm. That's basically, I guess, a quick summary of how the, these two things work. Two it, countries go down a line like Cuba or mm-hmm. Venezuela, like they get cut off altogether. Right, and they get out of line when they don't make subservient don't. the interests of their own majority population to those of international capital. And when you dare to serve your own people's interests, which is what democracy is all about, and prioritize them over international capital, then what rains down upon you are all of these extraordinary advantages the West led by the U.S. has regarding the international monetary exchange system that you've been speaking about. Yeah, I want to just remind people that we are visiting with Stan Smith, and I wanted to go back, Stan, you were basically summarizing these international lending inst- institutions and stuff and how they operate as tools of dominance by the bigger economy-driven Western nations like the United States and such. And it's almost like it's just a microcosm of what a monopoly is, right? If you have a an inordinate amount of the market, with that comes these unfair advantages that allow you to kind of put underneath your thumb anyone that may be seeking to go another path or whatever. So that influence is very real. The one thing you started to talk about a little bit earlier that I wanted to go back to is that these sanctions, they're out there to try to change governments that we don't approve of so that we'll have governments in there that that we would approve of that would, you know, I think be more conducive to the financial investment building that, that these big powers seek. And as a result of that, they use these sanctions, and the problem is is that it does not in any way impact those people that are in the government, that are in power, but it does devastate the lives of the underlying population. And when you look at nations like, you, you've been mentioning Venezuela, the Center for Economic Policy Research, they came out not too long ago. And just in the matter of a year or two, between 2017 and 2018, documented that there were over 40,000 deaths that were caused by this sanctioning. You've already mentioned the asphyxiating effects on the Cuban economy that the Cuban sanctions have had. And based on their overwhelming prioritizing of health and basic needs, their country has not lost the same number of lives, but certainly have, have lost close to, what, a trillion dollars or more over these decades of the, of the sanctions. But the other country that I wanted to kind of speak to has to do with, with Iran and these sanctions, they extend into medical medicines and access to chemotherapy drugs. And, and that is a, a violation as well of international law that any sanction should interfere with those types of medical issues. But can you walk us through the impacts that these sanctions are having in countries like Iran that we're not as well versed in as these other ones? For a country like Iran, I can't talk about that well. But I could talk about Venezuela because I have friends there. Venezuela, you can, there's not, not much diesel sold and, and gas right now because the U.S. is blocking all their exports of oil. Mm-hmm. So, like, you have, you're up in the countryside and you need to get dialysis a couple times a week. Well, you can't get to the hospital to get your dialysis, so people will die from that. Mm-hmm. I imagine that's the same in Iran. I, I'm not sure how many people they say die in a year in Iran from sanctions, 
But uh, well, they were indicating that it, it, it's tens of thousands. I mean, this is a very big country. You know, it's what, over seventy million. Yeah, people. and they're wealthier, much wealthier. I think they're wealthier than Cuba or Venezuela. Right. Right. And then they're in Asia, so they're farther away from the United States, and they're much closer to China, which is helping all these countries mm-hmm. combat the sanctions. Yeah, well, that's the point. There was a there was a piece was outlining the impact of these sanctions, and as we indicated before, when you have sanctions that are covering what th- over thirty five nations and one third of the world's population, and they're like you said earlier, they're almost solely U.S.-led sanctions. I mean, I'm not aware mm-hmm. of... I mean, is Russia sanctioning any country? Is, is China sanctioning a number of countries in a comparative way? So this is really something that I, I guess I wanted to have you speak to because I don't think the United States public is aware, not just of their impact, but of the breadth of the impact throughout one-third of the world's population now you're talking about billions of people now, a couple of billion people right. or, or more. Yeah, the sanctions are on those. Um, I guess the sanctions also affect people. I mean, they affect us here, too, because mm-hmm. we pay higher prices for things. And I think, well, I could give one example I was going to before about the extent the U- U.S. uses this, the uh, SWIFT system, which is the Society for Worldwide Interbank financial telecommunication to impose sanctions like punishes people anywhere. I read a story that was in the Toronto Globe and Mail about a year and a half ago about some little guy who had a truck. Him and his wife had a little truck they would sell coffee out of from different countries, and that was their business. And their bank account got frozen because they were selling Cubita coffee from Cuba. And the U.S., they monitor everything, everywhere. They said, oh, you're selling two or three cups of Cuban coffee a day in your little truck on a street. And you have a bank account in this bank, Mm -hmm. and so therefore we're shutting your account. Mm -hmm. And we'll open your account to you stop selling Cuban coffee, otherwise you're, forget it, you're not getting your money. Mm -hmm. It's like... Canada doesn't have sanctions on Cuba. They trade with Cuba, but you can be in Canada selling Cuba stuff, and you can still be your account's frozen because your the U.S. can still do it. It's like they reach everywhere in the world. So yeah, maybe they have sanctions on 39 countries, but it affects everybody on the planet. Now, if they can track down a little coffee portable coffee truck place selling a couple cups of Cuban coffee a day, then they, the power they have over the world financial system is just overwhelming. So if you're in a little country like Cuba or Venezuela, how do you survive when you're up against that kind of like superpower? Well, have, have you followed the different countries that have tried to extricate themselves from that economic reach? In other words, like I, I can remember that one of the things that the Gaddafi was interested in doing was, and Saddam Hussein actually, was to create their own currency. And, right. I, and, I, and I believe that's a big trigger for Western intervention right there, that if you get out of the system or try to get out of the system that is so over-controlled by these big powers, 
then you become a target for things worse than sanctions, namely invasion and war. Right. Well, yeah, I think both of them, because, you know, after the U.S. went off the gold standard in, what, 71, that Mm -hmm. uh, Nixon started using the petrodollar, which meant that all the oil-producing countries were going to sell their oil only in dollars. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, the U.S. got, you know, a cut, and it guaranteed that the world control of the dollar, because you couldn't buy oil without the dollar, and everybody needed oil. Therefore, the U.S. stayed on top. Everybody needed dollars, and you're trading in dollars. Well, the country that owns those dollars gets a big financial benefit from it. Saddam Hussein tried to sell their oil not in dollars, and so did Qaddafi try to sell it in their, what did they have, the Dinar? Dinar, D-I-N. African Dinar? Yeah, Dinar, D-I-N-A-R, I think was, was what it was. Yeah. yeah, and that's, yeah, that was a threat to the U.S., so they basically, I mean, U.S. controls, they overthrew them. Mm-hmm. I think the only country that can really survive sanctions by the U.S. now is China, because they're so big and they're, they're economically independent and they're self-sufficient in most things. So well, they're it, too powerful for the U.S. to be able to sanction and then they get away with it. Right. It has some effect, but not much. But the rest of the little third world countries, they're just got to, like Cuba, they just got to survive, just mm-hmm. get by. Well, that's very interesting. This is really in, in a part of the world economy that I'm not well versed in. So it's been very educational to hear you speak about this inordinate powers that are captured just by virtue of the U.S. dollar being the world currency. Uh, yeah, well, one other thing I didn't mention. Yeah. Some other ways that the U.S. can impose its own sanctions on the world. I guess I mentioned the SWIFT system and how the U.S. can monitor all transactions that take place around the world and then block any ones that it feels like. Right. And it controls the uh, international, the World Bank and the IMF. And it can, it also tells countries that, you know, don't have sanctions. European countries don't have sanctions on Cuba and some companies in Europe trade with Cuba. U.S. tells them, well, you can have access to the Cuban market or the U.S. market, whichever market you want. But right. it's up to you what you want to do. Little Plus, bit, you know, the U.S. is like 25% of the world market. And the last thing U.S. can do is they can find banks around the world and companies for violating U.S. I know about U.S. Uh, the U.S. blockade on Cuba, which other countries, there's no, they don't have blockades on Cuba. Mm-hmm. So it's perfectly legal for them to trade and do business with Cuba, but the U.S. can still impose fines on them and make them pay. Like just, well, yeah, I'll give you three examples. In April 2019, the British bank Standard Chartered agreed to pay $1.1 billion for violating the U.S. blockade on Cuba. In November 2018, the French bank Société General was fined $1.34 billion. That's not million, it's billion for violating the Cuban embargo. And the biggest fine was under Obama. In 2014, the Paris National Bank, Paribus, agreed to pay a $8.1 billion fine. Mm-hmm. That's kind of amazing. They, 
banks in other countries that don't have any blockade, it's not the law of their country. They have to obey the law of the United States. Or get fined a billion dollars. Paying fines of billions of dollars, and they don't contest it. Basically, the U.S. can do it is by saying, they can get away with it by saying, you don't pay that fine, your businesses in the United States are shut. Very good. Well, listen, Stan, we are just about out of time. I just wanted to remind folks that we would had the great pleasure of visiting with Stansfield Smith. He's been involved in movements against the United States intervention in Latin America since the 1980s and before. He also is working out of Chicago and works with the Chicago Alba Solidarity Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about the AFGJ and how people can access some of your writings? Oh, well, the Alliance for Global Justice, uh, that's at afgj.org. I, I do their Venezuela album weekly, which I weekly news on Venezuela, mostly Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba. But I also have my own website when I have, write articles. I also publish them on my blog besides in journals. So that's at chicagoalbasolidarity.wordpress.com. Well, very good. So that's Chicago Alba, A-L-B-A, solidarity.wordpress.com. Right. Well, Stan, thank you very much for joining us tonight, and thank you for the very complicated but simplified presentation that you made tonight on the on the world economic system and how it is dominated by the U.S. and the West. We'll look forward to following your work into the future. All right. Well, thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, I yeah. I can help you out in doing your work in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, keep up the good work, and thank you again. It's been 52 years since patrons of the Stonewall Inn decided that they would no longer endure harassment from the police, thus marking the beginning of the gay rights movement. The past 20 years have seen significant victories in the courts, including legalizing same-sex marriage and important employment protections. Nevertheless, we now see unprecedented attacks on transgender persons. Join Co-op during the month of June to celebrate LGBTQ victories and to keep fighting for equal rights. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with Co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Naivety.
Come 